Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. I want to thank Jenny for singing this morning. They have two children. One, uh, Carter, is in the nursery, and uh, I've been told that when she sings, he'll, he'll tell folks, that's my mama singing. But we've also had when men sing, he'll say, that's my daddy singing. And he and I have joked about the fact we're going to do a duet the second Sunday in September right here in this place. So. There'll be nobody here. You know, I hate it when um, I forgot my watch. Okay. The title of the message today is Clothed with Christ. Do you ever have, you know, don't punch your significant other here if this has ever happened, but have you ever had somebody tell you right before you're about to walk out the door, are you wearing that? My wife's never said that to me, but my children have. <laughs> and, you know, you think, well, of course your answer is, oh, no, uh-uh, no, I'm changing. I'm going to be late now, but I'm certainly not wearing this because you're going, what's wrong with this? And children are probably better at that than our spouses sometimes at telling us, that's not going to work. That doesn't go together. Don't, don't do that. I want to think about that in a spiritual sense this morning, being clothed with Christ. There's a book written. I remember reading as a child, I think Rudyard Kipling wrote the book, The Emperor's New Clothes. Where's the teacher that can tell me? Who was it? Oh, Don, I thought you were fixing to tell me. Who wrote the book, Emperor's New Clothes? Anybody know? All right, don't Google it during the message. It's not important. But you know, this, you remember the story of the book, this uh, emperor, this king asked for somebody to make him new clothes, and he was dissatisfied with everything until this one tailor came in and made him clothes. The only problem is you couldn't see him. The tailor had, had, had somehow convinced the king that only the enlightened can see these clothes. They are so fabulous. So everybody pretended to see them because they wanted to be in the in crowd. Until one little kid in the crowd said, you're naked, <laughs> and pointed out the obvious. Well, I think spiritually there's times as believers that we're walking around inappropriately dressed because we're not walking around clothed with Christ. Let me read the first part of this passage. And Paul has just completed teaching about what we are what we owe to government officials and what we owe uh, to other people. And he comes to verse 8 and he says, "Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So Paul, just wrapping up what we owe to the government in taxes and what we owe to other people, comes to this and says, really, don't be under obligation to anybody. Now, some people may take this verse and say, you shouldn't borrow money. Well, I encourage you not to get extended beyond your means, but it literally, the word literally means to be under obligation to. So it means pay your debts. And the one thing you do owe, in fact, it's a continuing word. This is a debt that you will never pay off. It just should be a continual part of your life is that you love other people. We've talked about this word love in here before. It's the word agape. There's, there's at least three words used in the Bible. There's three Greek words used in the Bible. There's other Greek words for love, but three that are used in the Bible. 
The one that's God's kind of love is agape. It means love without condition. It means love without strings attached. It means I treat you the way God would treat you, not because you deserve it, not because of anything you've done for me. I'm going to love you like God loves you. And, folks, we need help with that. That's why you have to pray. God, help me to show these people the kind of love you'd want me to show them. Help me to see them the way you do, God. Because quite honestly, if we treat people the way they deserve sometimes, it won't be love. And maybe we have to look ourselves in the mirror and realize, you know what, God, thank you. You don't treat me the way I deserve. But you have shown me this unconditional love. So it says, the only thing you really owe is that you love your neighbor. Literally, that you love other people. And he's talked about this already in Romans, that we're to love other believers. But this really extends outside just the church family. This is your fellow man. That's what we owe our fellow man. John, who was described as the disciple that Jesus loved, wrote the book of John, also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Let me, let me just walk you through a few verses. 1st John chapter 2, verse 10. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. 1st John 3, 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. 1st John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.21 And this commandment we have from Him, that the, lo- that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So one of the distinctive marks of a believer is you're going to love other people. In fact, he puts it this way, if you've done that, you have fulfilled the law. The word fulfill means to make replete, to cram, or to satisfy. All the law from the Old Testament really can be summed up this way. In fact, what did the man ask Jesus? What's the greatest commandment? Remember what Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how important it is. That's, Jesus said it really could be condensed to that. In fact, Paul gives us four of the Ten Commandments. Now, I ask students this sometimes. How many commandments are there in the Ten Commandments? You know, and a lot of times they just, they're afraid to answer because they it's a trick question. Don't answer. Well, there's ten. He mentions four. And we know the first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The last six of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationship with our fellow man. He mentions four of them. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And what Paul is saying is really all of those things are summed up. If you're having a hard time remembering all the Ten Commandments, if you're having a hard time remembering the hundreds of other commandments, if it would really come down to the fact that you love God with all your heart, because if you love God with all your heart, you're not going to break the first four. You're not going to have other gods before Him. You're not going to make graven images. You're not going to take His name in vain. And you're going to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And he only mentions four of the other six He leaves out bearing false witness. He leaves out honoring your father and mother. But bottom line is, you're not going to be committing adultery if you love people with God's kind of love. Adultery does not come from pure love. It comes from selfishness. You're not going to steal. In fact, I love the Greek word here is the word klepto. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) You're a klepto if you steal something. You're a kleptomaniac. where we get the word from. And so Paul is saying, if you genuinely love your fellow man, you're not going to be stealing their stuff. Don't murder. You're not going to kill people if you love them. 
Don't covenant. In other words, don't set your heart on something that your neighbor has. If you love them, you're not going to want to take their stuff, and you're not going to be passionate about coveting in a bad way the things that belong to your neighbor. Then Paul sums it up. If there's any other commandment, well, obviously there are other commandments, but he said if there's any other commandments, they could be summed up. In fact, I love the the root meaning of the word summed up means this. It means to strike on the head. You ever heard that when you're trying to come up with an answer and somebody says, you hit the nail on the head right there? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you've hit the nail on the head of keeping all the other commandments if you just keep this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's not promoting self-love. It's taking, it's taking into consideration that you're already doing that. That that's what comes natural, taking care of yourself. So he's saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And all the other commandments are summed up in that one. Then he goes on to the question of knowing the time. Let me read verse 11 in the first part of verse 12. Do this. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Paul is saying that in the midst of owing nothing to anyone, you know what, I skipped verses. I should have read from verse, no, I read a verse 11. I'm good, okay. I looked down, I thought, where, where am I in, the, in my place here? Love does your neighbor no wrong. Love fulfills the law. But knowing the time is what Paul's saying. Understand the time. The word normally used in Scripture for time is the word chronos. It's where we get chronology from. It's not the word he uses here. So he's not just saying specifically know the moment, but he's saying know the times, know the era, know the epoch, know the age that you're in. And Paul's saying, let me explain it to you. Let me tell you the age that we live in. We live in an age where the return of Christ is very soon. Paul says know the time because it's already the hour. He's stressing the urgency. People in the first century quite often lived under the assumption that Jesus was about to come back. In fact, Paul wrote in 1st or 2nd Thessalonians, he said, listen, don't take the slowness of God's coming back that as somehow he's forgotten. But in, in other words, understand that it's part of his patience because he's not willing that any should perish. So Paul says there's going to be people, the longer it takes for Christ to come back, there's going to be people say he's not coming back. Well, trust me, he is. When the disciples heard from the angels, you remember when Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples are standing there. I just I kind of picture them with their mouth open thinking, what, what is this? Jesus ascends into the cloud and the angels appear to him and say, why are you looking into heaven? The same Jesus that you have seen leave is coming back. So Paul speaks to that then in Romans chapter 13. said, know the hour. There's sand in this hourglass. And we call it an hourglass. Let me tell you, I've timed this one. It doesn't take an hour, so relax. But here's the deal with the return of Christ. We're not sure how much sand is left in the hourglass. He could return soon. In fact, well, one thing we know, it's sooner than it's ever been, right? It's been 2,000 years roughly since he left. It's sooner than it's ever been. The return is closer than it's ever been. In fact, Paul puts it that way. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. But Paul is basically writing to a group of people to wake them up. He said, it's already the hour. Awaken from sleep. The word really means to arouse somebody, to shake them, 
in order to wake them because they've been asleep. In fact, if you look up the word sleep that is used here, in Britannica it means this, a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. You know anybody like that? When they go to sleep, they have left the planet. My children have been like that. One of my children used to, the church I served in North Carolina, it literally took us three minutes to get home. And when one of my children was very young, he would ask us before we, I mean, we're like a, a mile from the house. And he'd say, Daddy, when we get home, will you get me out of the car if I, call, if I fall asleep? I'm like, yeah, boom, he starts snoring. I was just like, yeah, I wish I could do that. He just, you know, he was out. Just, he knew, I'm just going to make sure they're not going to leave me in the car. Well, some people can just kind of fall asleep. Well, spiritually, Paul is speaking to people who are spiritually asleep and said, wake up, people. You need to know the time that we live in. You need to know the error that we are part of here. And you need to wake up. Why? Because salvation is nearer than when you first believed. The word salvation means rescue or safety. I don't know what your world is like on earth. And Paul's writing to a group of Christians in Rome who their world was turned upside down. Many of them were losing their freedom for the cause of Christ. Some of them had been put... You know, in jail, some of them would ultimately lose their life just because they were believers. And Paul's encouraging them with the fact that salvation is near. It's interesting that as a Christian, sometimes you can study everything except the return of Christ, and you can focus on everything except that. In the Bible, both Old and New Testament, for every one verse on the advent of Christ, for every one verse that talks about the first coming of Christ, there are eight verses that talk about the fact that He's returning. You think God wants us to focus on that occasionally? God wants us to live, not that that's all we think about, but at least part of our focus needs to be on the fact that it gets better than this. Regardless of what you're going through on earth, this isn't the end. There's a day coming when Christ returns and claims those who are His. and We spend eternity with Him in heaven. So be encouraged by the fact that salvation is near, is closer than when we first believed. And then he uses other imagery. The night is almost gone. Isn't it interesting that he, in a minute he's going to talk about us putting on the clothes of light, but he says the night is almost gone. Folks, we live in a world where it seems like it's getting darker, doesn't it? You know, remember the old saying, it's always darkest just before the dawn. I don't know how true that is. But in a spiritual sense, I think that's exactly what takes place. It's getting darker. And the problem when it gets darker is people think that's the norm. That's the way it's going to keep going. It's just going to keep getting worse. Folks, there's coming a time when it's going to be over. And all of a sudden, Jesus returns. And regardless of the night that you've been living through, there'll be no more night. If you read Revelation, you find out there's not going to have to be a sun or moon. There's not going to need to be lamps in heaven because the glory of God will illumine heaven. The gates will never close because... In the first century and beyond, back into the Old Testament, you closed the gates when it got dark to keep people from entering. Well, they're not going to have to close the gates in heaven because it'll never be night. I don't know if you grew up afraid of the dark, but spiritually we ought to be afraid of that dark. But we also ought to be encouraged by the fact that there's coming a day of salvation. There's coming a day of rescue. And that is that Jesus Christ comes back. I grew up in a home that had a, I had a brother who's four and a half years older than me and I don't know that I was afraid of the dark as much as I just learned there were certain things you do before you go to sleep. One was I would always check the closet. I never actually liked sleeping with the closet door closed. 
And I learned that because if I didn't check the closet, my brother would hide in there until the lights were out and I was almost asleep and he would jump out and scare me to death. Either that or he would like squirt something in my ear. Just do something to me. So every time I think about the fact that, you know, dark deeds happen at night, well, I think about my brother sometimes. Here's the good news. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Now, folks, Paul said that to a group of believers 2,000 years ago. And I don't want you to think that, well, it may be another 2,000 years. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or next year. You know, Jesus says nobody knows that hour except the Father, and yet we do need to be aware of the circumstances, the hour, the, the, the epic or the era that we're living in. And, folks, I think we're living in the last days. And that should be good news. I read a story this week about John F. Kennedy when he was campaigning for president in 1960. He would close a lot of his speeches with a quote from Colonel Davenport, who was the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. Colonel Davenport's testimony is he was the Speaker of the House of Representatives on May the 19th, 1780. The sky of Hartford darkened ominously, and they started looking out the windows, and people were saying the judgment's near. And they wanted to dismiss and go take care of business and get home. And Colonel Davenport said, The day of judgment's either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there's no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. Rather than fearing what is to come, we're to be faithful till Christ comes. Instead of fearing the dark, we're to be lights as we watch and wait. Colonel Davenport. Folks, that's how you live then as a Christian. The last few chapters of Romans, Paul is making the case now, so what? First 11 chapters, he's talked about what God has done through Jesus Christ. He's talked about grace. He's talked about God's mercy. He's talked about how we come to Christ. Now he's telling you how to live. And he's telling a group of Romans and folks through Scripture, he's telling us today. Yeah, we do live in a dark generation. In Philippians, he says, you, you now live in a dark generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. So the day is near. The last thing then is to embrace the change. The last part of verse 12, he says, therefore. Paul, Paul uses that word so many times in Romans. He makes a case and he says, therefore. Okay, because of what I've just told you, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, nor in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So the case that Paul's made in these first few verses then come to the bottom line, to the point, therefore, let us lay aside. Paul is saying there are things that you're wearing that you need to take off. You need to remove the garments of darkness. You need to remove the things that you've kind of been raised in. And understand, listen, the day you come to Christ, a change takes place in your life. We call it salvation. And a process begins. We call justified, or you're immediately justified, justified. We call it sanctification. God's up to something in your life. But there's still part of your old life that God's got to work on. God's got to prune some things. God's got to carve some things. There may be habits that you had the day you came to Christ that are hard to get over, and you, you, God's got to work on you. That's part of this experience of being a Christian. 
In fact, that's really good news to know that God's working on those things. If there's areas in your life where you sense that God is disciplining you, that's good because the Bible says God disciplines those whom He loves. If there's parts of your life that are just obviously wicked and God's not getting your attention about those things, uh-oh. Because <laughs> you don't know Him. You're not one of His children. He's going to be at work in your life. So let us lay aside, literally this idea of put away, forsake, renounce, even repent of the deeds of darkness. And interesting, he uses that word deed for toil, but the word darkness. Darkness, literally, the word means shadiness or obscurity. He said the deeds you're doing in the dark places. I've never done a study of this, but if there's a criminologist among us, they would probably tell us most or a lot of crimes take place at night. It happens in dark places. In fact, quite often the places you go to commit some of these sins are real dark places. Now, if you're going in a dark restaurant, it may just be that the food's bad. <laughs> you know, they don't want you to see what you're eating. But the world, it seems like, waits for nighttime. If they're going to steal something out of your house or steal something out of your car or steal something out from under your house, they want to do it when the light's not on. They do it in darkness. So Paul's saying, put away the deeds that you used to be involved in in darkness. And put on. The word put on literally means to be invested with clothing. It means you've taken off one garment and put on another garment. When I hear that thought of this transaction that takes place, of what, what God's up to, it's like one of my favorite activities in college, my freshman year of college, is anytime it rains, we got real excited because we'd go out and play mud football. And we would play mud football and enjoy it. We may play for an hour. We may play for two hours. And folks, moms, if you're here, it would be scary to see what I looked like after that was over. <laughs> but I couldn't wait when it was over to get in and get a shower and get those clothes off. I didn't wear those dirty clothes the rest of the week. Now, some of you may have younger children who are satisfied doing that. <laughs> but I got smart enough as a college student. I didn't, I didn't want to keep wearing those. Folks, that's the same image we ought to have of the past that we've left behind. You've taken off those things. You've put on, and the word that Paul uses is, you've been invested with clothing. You have put on the armor of light. The word armor is an image he's also used over in Ephesians when he says put on the full armor of God so that you can stand the schemes of the evil one, so that you can live the Christian life. You need to be clothed in his armor, not your own. So put on the full armor. In fact, the imagery that he's using there, this armor of light, is the imagery of a soldier who at night has taken off his military battle, his military garb, and perhaps been involved in things he shouldn't have been involved in. And Paul's saying, wake up. Take off that stuff and put back on the armor of light. Why? Because we're in a fight. We're in a battle. We live in a generation of darkness, so we need to be putting on the armor of light and let us behave properly as in the daylight. And then he gives six things. He gives three couples of things. The first one is not in carousing. It's, it really, that word originally in Greek was used as a military term or an athletic term. It, it meant this. It meant if you've just won a military battle and you've had victory, they would use this word. Or if you've had an athletic contest and you've had victory, they use this word. But it became, it, it, it started off as a positive word. It ended up being a negative word because what happened at the end of military victory, what happened too often at the end of athletic conquest was that it became immoral. 
and the celebration became immoral. It led to debauchery. And so the word that started out positive by the time of the New Testament had taken on a very negative context. So Paul says, live properly as in the day, not the way the people in the night do, in carousing or drunkenness. The word literally means the intentional and habitual intoxication. It just means you, you live your life totally tuned out from reality on alcohol. Then he also mentioned sexual promiscuity. Another word that's interesting, normally the word for sexual infidelity in Scripture is the word pornea, where we get the word pornography. It's interesting, the word he uses here is really the word that would be translated couch or bed. It, it would be that phrase, I guess, in our modern vernacular of, you know, I'm going I'm to shack up or I'm going to sleep with somebody. And sensuality, literally shameless excess with absence of restraint. Paul says you, you shouldn't live that way anymore. That was the deed you did before you became a Christian. That was the deeds of darkness. So put those off. Put on the armor of light. Don't live in those things. Don't live in strife or jealousy. The word strife is a word for per persistent contention and arguing and bickering. The word coupled with it is that word jealousy. It means hot. In fact, it's where we get the word zeal from. These people were zealous for things they shouldn't have been zealous of. In fact, it's those two words, strife and jealousy, that were about to split the first century church. And folks, not a lot's changed since then. Strife and jealousy, arguing, wrangling, quarreling, are the things that could cause division in the church. So we take those off. And he closes out in verse 14 by saying, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord, Kurios, the one that's in charge. Put on the fact that He is now your master. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Put on Jesus Christ. And then make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. To make provision for the flesh, literally it means an act of forethought. It means that you are planning to sin. And really worse than that, it means this. It means that you allow thoughts to linger in your mind until ultimately they bear fruit. In fact, James puts it this way over in, over in chapter 1 of James where he talks about, you know, don't blame God when you're, when you're falling into sin. Understand that God's not tempted and He doesn't tempt anyone. But we're all tempted when we're enticed and carried away. Where does that start? That starts right here. Folks, if you're falling into a habitual sin, it's because you haven't stopped it where it started. Paul talked about in the previous chapter, Romans 12, he said, you need to have your mind renewed because your mind is saturated with the stuff of darkness. Our mind is saturated with the stuff of this world, and the world's trying to cram you into its mold. He said, no, not any longer. Now that we're believers, our mind's being renewed. And so we put off the things of darkness. We put on the things of Christ, and we stop making provision for the flesh. We take those evil thoughts captive. We take them to Christ and say, God, I don't even want to think that way anymore. I don't want to give fruit to these thoughts that I'm having. Stop it right there. In this longing for what's forbidden. I love the fact that in Romans there's so much of this so what from Paul. There's so much of the therefore. People, let's take the passage that we've heard because the sand's almost out. 
and let's live the Christian life the way God intended for it to be lived. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, I thank you for the encouragement, Lord, to know that you are returning for your own. God, we don't know the day or the hour. But you've told us that we ought to acknowledge the signs, that we ought to recognize the age that we live in. God, we live in an age where it just looks so dark. In fact, it looks like the darkness is winning at times. But God, thank you for the encouragement. No, the darkness is not winning. Just getting darker and Satan's throwing every trick in the book at the world. But we rely on the promise of a Savior that is coming again. So God, with that in mind, help us to live our lives, not as children of darkness, but as children of the light. God, clothe us with that kind of armor. In fact, ultimately, clothe us in Jesus Christ. Because that's really who we are. We are believers in a Savior. And we look to the coming day where we're united with Him again and where we spend eternity with the God who loves us and saved us. God, in the meantime, would you allow others to see that witness through us? I guess, Lord, one of the best ways we could show love to our neighbor is that we introduce them to Jesus. And our neighbor needs to see something in our life that would let them see there's a difference and would attract them to the claims of Christ. So, Lord, help us. We pray this in Jesus' name.